Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts as we come to a time of study together. Father, we thank you for the freedom, for the privilege and the opportunity we have to meet together and to look at the Word of God. Father, we thank you that the Word says of itself that it is living and powerful. And Lord, we're told that your Word has the power to divide between that which is fleshly of this world and that which is spiritual. And Lord, this morning, help us to be able to discern the one from the other. Lord, we pray that you speak to us this morning, stir our hearts. Father, I pray that we be challenged. Lord, that we would grow. And Lord, your word speaks of us growing, not just physically, but Lord, growing in knowledge and in grace. And Lord, we want to grow in grace. We want to understand more of what you have done for us. And then Lord, allow that to impact our lives, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We just give you this time. Speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we came to the end of our study through Revelation. I think somewhere about 25, 26 sessions, um, just going through verse by verse. And, and I hope you feel blessed. Um, the Bible itself says that, Revelation says that there's a blessing simply for reading the book. And I think as we've studied through it, there are lots of blessings. I think just to realise that this world is not our home, that the problems that we see going on in this world... They're going somewhere. It's not, I'm not suggesting they have a purpose in and of themselves, but this is all part of a plan that God has revealed. And God, of course, doesn't want these atrocities that we're seeing every week at the moment to take place. But God has foretold that we're going to be living in these times. And so it's a very poignant time to study the book. But this morning what I want to do is to look at those last few verses of Revelation. Uh, which speak about the Lamb's Book of Life. It's a subject we don't tend to spend a lot of time thinking about, but I really want to just dig into this and just uh, maybe throw a few things in this morning um, to encourage you, to challenge you, uh, maybe just to, to help us to think slightly differently about what actually is the Lamb's Book of Life. First of all, um, something I would refer to as the ostrich syndrome, which actually is not really fair on ostriches because apparently they don't actually bury their heads in the sand when danger comes. Uh, they do get their heads in the sand to pick up gravel and stones and things which help their digestion, and sometimes they tend to their eggs, but uh, that aside. Um, Edmund Spencer said this. He said, There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is a proof against all argument, and which cannot fail to keep man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is condemnation before investigation. I don't think that is a a truer statement of the approach of most people to the Bible than you can find. It's such a spot on. It's where people are at. People condemn the Bible. They dismiss the Bible. And there's this kind of, well, we don't know, can't know, or don't want to know. And so people just dismiss this incredible book that we have in our midst, we have access to. Abraham Lincoln said this, he said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the saviour of the world is communicated to us through this book. Patrick Henry said, the Bible is worth all the other books that have ever been printed. I mean, that's quite some statement. There's a lot of wonderful books that have been written on all sorts of subjects. Patrick Henry, Henry says that this, the Bible is worth all the other books that have ever been written. Napoleon said this, he said, The Bible is no mere book, but it is a living creature with a power that conquers all that oppose it. George Washington, another president, in fact the first president of the United States of America, said this, It is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. That's uh, a good bit of advice for those uh, in office today. Philosopher Immanuel Kant said this, he said, I believe that the existence of the Bible is the greatest benefit to the human race. Any attempt to belittle it, I believe, is a crime against humanity. Right? Bold statements. Let me just read this quote. This is from Professor Monterio Williams. He was a scholar who had spent 42 years studying various religious texts, Eastern religions and all sorts of other things. And he said this, Pile them, if you will, on the left side of your study table, but place your own holy Bible on the right side, all by itself, all alone and with a wide gap between them. He carries on and says, For there is a gulf between it and the so-called sacred books of the East, which severs the one from the other utterly hopelessly. 
And he just says that the Bible is so unique, so different than any other religious writing or, or other philosophical work. I love this quote by John Wesley. He said, This book had to be written by one of three people. Good men, bad men, or God. He says, it couldn't have been written by good men because they said it was inspired by the revelation of God and good men don't lie and deceive. It couldn't have been written by bad men because bad men would never write something that would condemn themselves. It leaves only one conclusion. It was given by divine inspiration of God. I quite like that quote. Okay, so... The Bible. What is it? Well, there's two critical discoveries we can make, and I'm indebted to Dr. Chuck Misler many years ago for really unlocking this and helping me to understand this. The the Bible is an integrated message system. We've got 66 books or so, penned by 40 or so different authors over a couple of thousand years approximately. And yet we find it is an integrated message system. Everything intertwines with everything else. Every detail is anticipated by deliberate, skillful design. And the other discovery is that it's provably from outside our time domain. Yet there are millions and billions that are spent on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And yet we've got something here that we can demonstrate is from outside of our time domain. You know, we don't have to, to look way off into the heavens hoping to try and find some signal we've got it here it's the word of a god who is outside time you see the bible tells the end from the beginning since god has got the technology to create us in the first place he certainly has got the means to get a message to us but the question then is how does god authenticate his message yeah how do we really know that that which we have is from god and it's not a contrivance or a fraud well there's a number of things firstly the more sure word of prophecy. We've then got the design that we can see in the details. The design in the very letters themselves. And then the design in the structure. And then we'll reach a conclusion in a short while. I want to just look at those first four and look at just a few things in each of those categories just to help us understand what it is we've got here. Because if you understand that this is not just a book, this is not just a collection of religious writings by people that lived a few thousand years ago, but if you understand this really is the word of the creator God to his creation, it will forever change the way you value it, you treasure it, and hopefully the way you read it and study it. Well, firstly, Second Peter, chapter 119. Peter there was speaking about an experience that he'd had on the Mount of Transfiguration where he'd seen Jesus just glow, this brilliant apparel, and Moses and Elijah apparently had turned up as well. What an amazing experience. I mean, that's the kind of thing that's going to live with you for the rest of your life. But Peter says, he makes a point, he says, you know, pretty much, that was great. He said, but we have also the more sure word of prophecy. You know, that eyewitness account, that physical experience I had, that was good, but I've got something even more solid than that, and that's prophecy. He says, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place. Well, prophecy is certainly that. The Bible is the only religious book that truly has prophecy. There's lots of books that have predictions, but not prophecy. Prophecy is very different. In the book of Isaiah, God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. See, God makes this declaration that he can say and declare the end from the beginning. Because God is outside of time. We read in Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. See, God is outside of time. I mean, one of those questions is, you know, you talk about the beginning and God was there in the beginning. And some people say, well, who was, how did God get created? God is outside of time. It's a concept that we, we might struggle with, but... The first thing I want to do is to take you back, if I may, to around 606 BC. I'm not sure what your history is like. I'm not sure if any of you are into history. I think inevitably if you start getting into the Bible and reading the Bible, you have to have some sort of appreciation of history because you start to see all these things fit together. But at that particular point in time, this young man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar suddenly found out that his father had died. 
and he became the king of Babylon. At that time, just emerging as the world empire. Well, Nebuchadnezzar comes and lays siege to Jerusalem in 606 BC as part of the people he takes away. Daniel, a young teenage boy, is taken with him and some of his friends, taken back to Babylon. And it begins a time, a period of time, the commentators and scholars refer to as the servitude of the nation. Because we're told very specifically that this period of time would last for 70 years. And it's specifically for the people. We read in the book of Jeremiah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon, and carries on, we read in verse 10, after 70 years, and there we are, very clear, be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you, and perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. Now God is a God who delights in keeping his promises, and we find out that that period of time was fulfilled for 70 years. But, 19 years after that, you see Israel had had a a few more kings, vassal kings that had been appointed by Nebuchadnezzar and so on. But they'd all tried to rebel. And finally Zedekiah is the last king of Judah that sat on the throne. And in 587 he rebels and Nebuchadnezzar comes back and says, I've had enough of this. And he lays siege to Jerusalem. And you can read the, the details of this are in the British Museum. You can go up and check these dates and these things. These are just records of history. And as part of this... Jerusalem is destroyed. Now this begins a period of time that's referred to as the desolations of Jerusalem. The first period of time specifically was for the people. The second period of time is regarding actually the nation itself. Just one second. Just the wind blowing through on the microphones over there. So, okay, sorry. So yes, it begins this period of time known as the desolations of Jerusalem regarding the city of Jerusalem itself and obviously the land. And God had said that Israel were to have 70 years away from the land as punishment for all of the years that they hadn't kept the Sabbath where they should have let the land lay fallow. That's not the Saturday Sabbath. That was every seven years they were to let the land rest and not harvest it or so on. And they didn't. So God says, you owe me 70 years. And he said, because of that, you're going to be kicked out. We read in Jeremiah 25, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon, and notice here we are again, 70 years, and it shall come to pass that when the 70 years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, says the Lord. Now those are just records of history. <clears throat> but in the book of Haggai, one of the minor prophets toward the end of the Old Testament, this is what we read. And now I pray you consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. They've come back from Babylon. They're now after this period of time. They're in the, the land. And Haggai receives this, 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 this word from the Lord. Verse 18 continues. Consider now from this day and upward. God is very specific. From the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. So what was special about this particular day? Well, it was the day the desolations ended. And this is absolutely incredible because at the time the Babylonian army was surrounding Jerusalem, back in 587, Ezekiel is told to record the day that it takes place. It was the 10th day of Tibet in the Jewish calendar, 587 BC. Haggai is told to record the day it ends, on the 24th of Kislev, 518 BC. Now, the interval between those two dates is actually 25,200 days. Now, that's 70 years exactly made up of 360 days. Now, one thing you will become sensitive to as you start looking at prophecy in the Bible is that prophetic years are always counted as 60 uh, sorry, 360 days. There's lots of interesting reasons for that, and maybe we can look at that some other time. But um, one of the, uh, the the reasons is it would appear that the Earth was once on, on a 360-day orbit. That's seemingly why we have 360 degrees in our circle and so many other things that we could um, pull as evidence for that. But that aside for now, the Bible just deals with years of 360 days when it speaks prophetically. So this 70-year period was exactly to the day. I mean, that should be enough to impress you. We're dealing with a God who is told 70 years in advance, and two separate occasions, because 606 and then 587. You see, we look at both of these events, we've got the first, or sorry, the desolations of Jerusalem, this is the second, or sorry, the third siege of Jerusalem, 
This is where the city is destroyed and we're told the day it finishes. We know the date that the servitude of the nation ended because that was in 537 and decree of Cyrus. Again, you can go to the British Museum and you can see the steel of Silas, this little cylinder, where he records that he allowed the nations that he'd held captive to go back to their own lands. Both of those are periods exactly of 70 days. Now that should just make you think for a second. But there's far more than that. Because when we move on to the book of Ezekiel, we find there what sometimes would perceive to be an unexplained prophecy. Ezekiel gives this mathematical puzzle in a sense um, regarding the judgment on the nation of Israel. This is what we're told. God says to him, Thou also, son of man, take a tile and lay it before thee and portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem. This has to be a boy thing, you see, because boys like building little models and things like that. So Ezekiel's thinking, this is great. See, he gets all his little you know, tools out and things and he makes this little uh, model of the city on his tile. Verse 2, And lay siege against it. And that's what we do as well, because once we finish building a tower, we knock it down. And lay siege against it, and build and cast a mound against it, set the camp also against it, and set battering rams against it round about. This is a real boy's thing, isn't it? Verse 3. Moreover, take thou unto thee an iron pan, and set it for a wall of iron between thee and the city. And set thy face against it, and it shall be besieged, and thou shalt lay siege against it. This shall be a sign to the house of Israel. And now this is what God is going to ask him to do. Now this is bizarre. Lie thou on thy left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it, according to the number of days that thou shalt lie upon it, thou shalt bear their iniquity. So he's to lie on his left side for a given number of days. He says, for I have laid upon thee the, the, the years of their iniquity. It's very specific what God is saying. The years of Israel's sin in rebellion. According to the number of days, 390 days, so shall they bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. Now, it's not clear from the text whether this is just every night when he goes to sleep, he lays on this particular side, or however God did it. But verse 6 carries on. And when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right side. So now you turn over, lay on the other side. And thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have appointed thee each day for a year. Very clear, very specific. So we're given a number of days, and each day is to represent a year. Let's, let's look at that and try and break it down. There's a total of 430 years of judgment that are prophesied against Israel as a nation. 70 years we know are accounted for in Babylon. So we're left with 360 years of judgment that are unaccounted for. Now, this is where it really gets interesting. Because in Leviticus 26, we're given another piece of information. Leviticus 26, we read, But if you will not hearken to me, and will not do all these commandments, and if you shall despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments, so that you will not do all my commandments but you break my covenant, I also will do this unto you. I will even appoint over you terror, consumption, and the burning, argue that you that, uh, shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. And I will set my face against you, and you shall be slain before your enemies. They that hate you shall reign over you. And you shall flee when none pursues you. I mean, doesn't that just sound a very accurate picture of what's happened to the Jewish people? I mean, can you think of any other people group that have experienced the persecution that Jews have? And notice verse 18, And if you will not yet for all this hearken unto me, so God is saying that these things will come upon them, but if after that period of judgment, after that time, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Now this is where it's really quite fascinating, because we actually find that this seven times is repeated four times in this one chapter. God makes it really clear, judgment will come upon Israel, if they still didn't learn their lesson, then the, the judgment, the remaining judgment will be multiplied four times. Now, as we said already, Israel were punished for their disobedience for 70 years in Babylon, that leaves that 360 years accounted for. What would happen then? If we just multiply that remainder by four, as Leviticus 26 indicates. Well, we find we'd have, if you worked it to the number of days, based on 360 days in a year, 907,200 days. Okay, and that's when Ezekiel's prophecy would come to an end, if we were to do this. Which seems to be what the, the scripture implies. As we said already, we've got the third siege, we know, 25,200 days, 70 years to the day. 
the desolation of Jerusalem, we know the date it ended. So if we now put our figure in 907,200 days, remember this is regarding the city of Jerusalem. When do you think that would come to? Well, you can check it, and there's no debate on this. Uh, there's a number of secular programs, I'll show you one in a minute, I've used called Redshift, but there's other tools that you can use. It comes exactly to the 7th of June, 1967, the very day that Israel regained Jerusalem. It's the day, in a sense, this period of desolations for Jerusalem ended. You may remember, 19 years before that, there was another very significant event. Some of you were alive and were aware of this. And that was on the 14th of May, 1948. It's when Israel became a nation again. You know, despite all the odds, despite everything that people thought could or might happen, Israel became a nation again, an identifiable people in their own land. What happens if we plot back? If we use that same calculation and we went back the other way, 25,200 years or 907,200 days, you'd come exactly to 537 BC in the decree of Cyrus. And then you go back to the beginning of that period of time and you've got that siege, the first siege. The first one was to do with the people, the second one, the city. Now, can you honestly tell me that you can dismiss the Bible now? You see, the Bible is outside of, of our time domain. It, it, that's its source, that's its origin. It, it, just to show you, Again, you, you, I mean, without digging or doing any research yourself, you can simply do the maths. You can work out that there are 19 years between 1967 and 1948, and there are 19 years between each of those other two judgments. Right, that's just not a coincidence. This is God's design. This is a, just a screenshots of this tool that I've got. Starting in 587 BC, jumping forward, you can see at the bottom, my point is broken, but you can see at the, the bottom box down there, 25,200 days, we jump forward in time and it takes us to the 14th of August, 518 BC. And then we jump forward 907,000 days, it takes us exactly to the 7th of June, 1967. We do the same again regarding the other one, we start in 606 BC, jump forward 70 years and it takes us exactly to 537 BC when Cyrus released the Jews from Babylon. And then jump forward again, 907,200 days, and that brings us exactly to 1948. Just breathtaking. Something else I just want to show you. In the, the New Testament, Peter went to Jesus and said, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother, uh, sorry, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Until seven times? Now, was Peter just being, uh, you know, attempting to impress Jesus here? Should I forgive up to seven times? I think that's quite reasonable. You know, is it just a reactionary comment that he's making, not really thinking? Or was it a considered question? Well, I would suggest to you that this was a considered question. Because there's a word that we have in the Greek text. It's heos, it's a point in time. You know what I've said already? That when you read those untils in the Bible, mark them, they're important. Peter's saying, how often shall I forgive my brother until seven times? That doesn't make a lot of sense in the English. But when you understand the Jewish mindset, it does. Because the Jews used to have... These seven times seven years, 49 years, and then the 50th year would be the year of Jubilee. The 50th year was the year when all the debts would be forgiven. And I think that's exactly what Peter is asking. Should I forgive up until the Jubilee? That's a very reasonable, sensible Jewish question. That's what they typically were used to. That's what the law, the Torah had told them to do. But look at Jesus' response. Jesus said unto him, I say not unto you until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Now some modern translations do all sorts of damage to this, and they just say until seventy times, or uh, up to seventy. But it's very clear, it's until seventy times seven. So is the implication that we forgive 490 times? Do you sit there thinking, that's one. And then you just keep going through. And you get somebody that's on 489 times. And if they sin against you again, you bop them. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Until. Just hold that thought. And I'll answer the question in just a moment. Because what I want to show you again is God's complete control on history. I appreciate the text is a bit small on the screen. But if you start with the time that Abraham was born. He was 75 years old when he moved into the land of Israel. The land of promise. And we know that God gave him this prophecy, this promise that 
There would be 430 years until they would finally get their own land. That occurs at the time that Moses leads the children out of Egypt. But up until that point, they'd be sojourning. They wouldn't have their own land. That's a period of 505 years. But it's interesting because for 15 years of that period of time, Ishmael is on the scene. The the child of the flesh, as it were. And that was really when Abraham was in a place of disobedience to God. If you did t- if you take away that 15 from the 505, you're left with 490 years. Interesting, is it just a coincidence? Well, let's carry on. Because again, you then find that from the Exodus to the time of the temple, we're given very specific details in scripture, we've got a period of 594 years. Plus the seven years it took in the building of the temple, gives us a total of 601 years. But what's interesting is, if you take away the years that are recorded in the book of Judges, when Israel were following other gods and they were in servitude to other nations, there's a total of 111 years recorded. If you do that sum, you find you come to 490 years. Now, that's starting to be a little bit more than just a coincidence. But then if you go from the temple to the edict of King Artaxerxes, now, this is a king who signed a decree allowing the rebuilding of the walls and the city of Jerusalem and of the temple. 445 BC, that event took place. Another matter of historical record. If you look at the details there, we're given the period of time from 1005 BC when Solomon starts that work to the time in Nehemiah, 445 BC. We've got a total of 560 years. But we take away that, our Babylonian captivity, a period of 70 years as we've already discussed, and you're left with 490 years again. And then, finally, from that period of Artaxerxes, from 445 BC to the time of the second coming, when in a sense Israel's job will be completed. Well, we've got 483 years that take us to the very day, to Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and presented himself as their Messiah. Exactly as Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, prophesied would happen. If you do the math, you realize you're seven years short. Because from that period of time, God, or Jesus, Luke 19, we're told, pronounced blindness on the nation of Israel because they missed the day of their visitation. They didn't understand prophecy. And we've ever, since that time, had this interview interval where the church has been, in a sense, God's focus. And this is still this undefined period of time. But we're told very clearly in Scripture that there is a time coming, and we've seen it as we've gone through our study, that there is a seven-year period yet to come. We refer to it as the 70th week of Daniel, the time of tribulation. So you add that seven years on, and you come again to 490 years. Wow. I mean, that's God's complete control on history. I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface there of looking at some of the prophecies. There are so many other prophecies that are equally as breathtaking and the details. Let's just move on. I want to have a look at some of the design in the details themselves. Now, let me ask a question. Do you think there are hidden messages in the Bible? I know there was lots of talk years ago about Bible codes and so on. Well, Proverbs 25.2 says, It's the glory of God to conceal a thing. But it's the honour of kings to search out a matter. Seemingly, God has put things in the Bible that are not laying on the surface for those who are diligent to find. A little riddle for you to start with. Who's the oldest man in the Bible? Anybody? Methuselah. Very good. He lived 969 years, and yet he died before his father. How does that work? Well, because his father was Enoch, and if you remember from what we're told, Enoch had something interesting happen at age 65, and then for after another 300 years we're told he walked with God, and then he was not because God took him. What happened at age 65? Well, he had a son. I mean, if you had an age, if you had a son at age 65, that would probably shake you up too. Of course, they were living longer in those days. But Methuselah is very interesting and not quite sure why Enoch chose to give him this name, other than seemingly God was working in the situation. Because the name Methuselah comes from the Hebrew root partly muth, which means death. And then Shalak, which means to bring or to send forth. So literally, his name means his death shall bring forth, shall send forth. I mean, at that time, probably a lot of people didn't think anything of it. But as he went on in his life, to have something like his death shall bring, 
It's going to make people, every time he got a cold, you can imagine people getting a little bit edgy. What's really interesting is when you look at the details in, that were given in the Bible, we're given the ages of Methuselah when he had his son Lamech, Lamech had his son, 182 years old, and then Noah, we know, was 600 years old at the, age of, at the time of the flood. It means that Methuselah died the very year the flood came. When he died, it shall come. And it did. So we see that his name has very specific meaning. Now, when you look in Genesis 5, you've got a long list of names there, and you may sort of skip over them as reading through your Bible, not thinking they're that important. But each name in the Bible has meaning. Let's just go through some of them. Adam. Well, very simply, we know Adam means man. That's what his name means. Seth. There's another one that we're given in the text itself and the meaning for, because his name is appointed. Eve said, for God has appointed me another seed instead of Abel who came slew. So Seth's name means appointed. Enosh, another interesting character, his name means mortal or frail or miserable. Why would you do that to your child? It's uh, from the roots anash, it means to be incurable. It's used of a wound, grief, woe, sickness and so on, which is just interesting. Kenan. His name means sorrow, dirge. It's just, you know, poor child going through life with these names. Mahalalil, now this is a bit better, because his name means, again, it's a compound name, is a blessed or praised, and the second part is El, which is the name for God. So his name really means the blessed God. It's a good name. Jared, Jared, interesting. Again, the, the verb here just means shall come down. And some commentators think that it was during Yared's time that these fallen angels came down, which led to the events of the flood later. Enoch, well, we kind of give him more details in scripture about this man. His name means commencement, or more specifically, teaching. And we know that he was a teacher. Jude highlights that for us. Methuselah, we've already mentioned. Again, his name means his death shall bring. And Lamech, well, we still use the word lament in our language today. And it um, comes from the same root. It just means lamentation. Despairing, if you like. And then finally, Noah. Good name. Which is derived from Nakam. It means to bring, bring relief or comfort. So that's just a list of names. Great, what do we do with that? Well, it's just interesting when you put them all together. You, every single one of those names there, you find, has got its own meaning. But what becomes really interesting is if we put that in a sentence... You get this. Man is appointed mortal sorrow. But the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. That is the Christian gospel from Genesis chapter 5 in the Torah. I mean, we're talking about a book here that the Jews wouldn't let the Gentiles anywhere near it if they had a choice. The Jews aren't going to Put in their beloved Torah, the Christian gospel, and yet there it is, in the names of the people. Very, very clearly laid out. And that's not the only place these things occur. Because in the book of Ruth, every individual in the, the book of Ruth, their names have meaning as well. Let me just read to you a very quick summary of the book of Ruth, you may be familiar. When Elimelech married Naomi, they brought forth Marlon and Chilion, uh, were forced to leave Bethlehem Judah. Elimelech died and Naomi became Mara, her name changed. Later, both Ruth and Orpha, they were both Gentiles, had the chance to return to the God of Israel. Orpha turned back and sought false gods. Ruth returned to the God of Israel. Ruth found grace in the eyes of her kinsman redeemer, who then purchased her, and she was joined to Boaz. What her, what the near kinsman could not do, uh, sorry, could not do, her Boaz did. Ruth married her Boaz and brought forth Obed, their child. That's just a brief, quick summary of the book of Ruth. Now, if we look at the names, very quickly just going through, Elimelech means God is my king, Naomi, her name means pleasure. Bethlehem Judah, is the name means the house of bread and praise. Mara, the name that Naomi changed her name to, means bitterness. Marlon means sickness, and Chilion means pining, naming your two children sickness and pining. It's never going to go well for those boys, was it? Ruth, beauty is her name. Orpha, well her name means double-minded. Boaz, his name means strength. It was one of the names of the pillars as well that Solomon had in his temple. And then the near kinsman in this type here is a type of the law. And then Obed, his name means worship. What happens then if we do the same story, exactly the same words, we just replace the meaning of the names instead of the original names? Well, if we do, you get this. When God is my king, 
Think back to the Garden of Eden, married pleasure. They brought forth sickness and pining and were forced to leave the house of bread and praise. God is my king, died. And pleasure became bitterness. Later, both beauty and double-minded, two different types of Gentiles, had the chance to return to the God of Israel. The double-minded turned back and sought false gods. The beauty returned to the God of Israel. Beauty found grace in the eyes of her kinsman redeemer, who then purchased her and she was joined to strength. What the law could not do, her strength or Christ did. Beauty married her strength. The church has married Christ and brought forth worship. You tell me this is just coincidence? These incredible designs in the details. Just look at the situation again, thinking of the book of Ruth and relating out to the church. The Gentiles were married to sickness. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Converted to the God of Israel through a Jewish witness, just as Ruth was by Naomi. We happened on the field of the kinsman. We're told that we didn't choose him, he chose us. We were introduced to the kinsman by an unnamed servant, i.e. the Holy Spirit, who's the one that draws us. The kinsman has left handfuls of purpose, blessings for us. The church has recognised her poverty before him, just as Ruth recognised her poverty before Boaz. Ruth makes this declaration, why have I found grace in your sight? Well, the statement is true of the church in regard to Christ. The church, just as Ruth was, was to wash, to cleanse herself before meeting her kinsman. She finds him at the threshing floor. She seeks to be under his authority and she simply rests knowing that he will complete everything. Once again, the story of grace hidden in this four chapter book in the Old Testament. Okay, I want to just show you a few things to show you that it's not just these kind of surface things or these these details, but even the letters themselves. An ancient rabbinic tradition said this, that when the Messiah comes, he will interpret words, letters, he'll even interpret the spaces between the letters. We need to look at the opening verse of the Bible. I mean, this is an incredible verse, just from a mathematical perspective, and so many other things that come out of this. But just for now, one thing I want to pull out. If we look at that in the Hebrew, Hebrew reads from right to left. If you notice in the middle there, you've got two, those two letters. They're untranslated. You, you, you have the first word there is Bereshit. It just means beginning or in the beginning. And then bara, out of nothing. And then the third word is Elohim. It's the name of God. It's a plural name of God. Then ignoring those two letters for a second, it carries on the text. Shemaim, which is the heavens. Etz, the, and then Eretz, earth. It's in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. So what are those two letters in the middle? Well, those two letters are equivalent in our alphabet to an A and a Z. In the Hebrew, it's an Aleph and a Tau, or in the Greek, it would be an Alpha and Omega. If we were to read the Hebrew text of Genesis 1-1, literally, it would be this. In the beginning, God, the Alpha and Omega, created the heavens and the earth. That's incredible. And we're told in Colossians that Jesus is the one who created all things. The Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And also in Zechariah 12, you have the same thing. When it speaks about Israel looking upon me whom they have pierced, it says looking upon me, and in the text there's an Aleph and a Tau. Looking upon me, the Alpha and Omega. And there's a number of other times that occurs in the Bible. Just to give you some other things, these are just some incredible things that we see. Now, you, you may have heard of the equidistant letter codes and so on. Just as an example of it here, there was a, one of the chapters who was into this, uh, was by the name of Rips. Um, and we just have this sentence. Rips explained that each code is a case of adding every fourth letter to form a word. And if you look at this, if you add every fourth letter, they actually spell read the code. So we take the first letter, we count forward, another three, the, the next letter, and then we count forward three. Yeah, so you see how it works. Well, if we go to the book of Genesis, if you start in the book of Genesis, and you take the first letter, T, effectively, in our uh, English, as we would pronounce it. You move forward, then, to what we... Sorry, the, the first letter there is an H. Hebrew reads, Hebrew reads the other way. So you start with an H, a He, and then a Vav, and then a Resh, and then you have your T. 
These are 49 letter sequences. So you, every letter, first letter count on 49. You start with your first hey and then you go on. It spells the word Torah. Now that could just be coincidence. It's impressive, but it could just be coincidence. But the interesting thing is, when you go to the book of Exodus, exactly the same thing happens again. You start again with your first hey, then you go on, you find the resh, then the vav, and then the tau, and it spells again Torah. When you go to Leviticus, it doesn't happen. But interestingly, when you go to Numbers, once again, the same thing happens. But this time, it's in reverse. Deuteronomy, again, the same thing happens, but this time it's in reverse. If we kind of look at what we've got there, in Genesis and Exodus we've got the word Torah going forwards. In Numbers and Deuteronomy, pointing back. It kind of just seems to be pointing towards the book of Leviticus. What do we find in Leviticus? Well, not at 49 letter sequences, but at 7, the square root of, in Leviticus, you find this. It's the name of God, Yahweh. If you put that together, what you see is effectively the Torah is always pointing to God. Another interesting aside, the Hebrew letters have meanings in themselves. The the Tau, the T, was written like a cross. The Vav was written as a nail. Resh was depicted as the head of a man. And the He was like the spirit or the breath of God. Even in that, there's the gospel message. In the word Torah, it's man with the Spirit of God nailed on the cross. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. In Genesis chapter 2, you've got a couple of scriptures. In Genesis 1.29, it starts speaking about, Behold, I've given you every herb-bearing seed, and it talks about the trees and so on, and that ends in chapter 2, verse 9. Out of the ground, God made the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant in the side and good for food. I'm not going to go through all the details, but underneath the text there, a varying letter distance sequences there, you've got every tree that occurs in the rest of the Bible intertwined, sitting under the surface text. Now, of course, with computers, it's very easy to start to find these things nowadays. But that's amazing. Just in that particular passage that on the surface is talking about the trees, underneath that is every tree that is found recorded in the rest of the Bible. In Isaiah 53, you've got every name that is relevant to do with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. All recorded as equidistant letter sequences under the text. With the exception of over 40 relevant names in just 15 sentences. But the interesting thing is, one name that should be there statistically is Judas. There's only three letters in the Hebrew, but it's not there. Isn't that interesting? I just want to highlight that even the letters themselves are by design. Now, we could spend a long time and start to talk about some of the discoveries by Dr. Ivan Pannon. And we, when we did our study in Matthew a few years back now, we went through looking at some of those things. But the intricacies of design in the Gospel of Matthew in the first few chapters are even beyond what we've just looked at, but I'll leave that for another time. Design in the structure... Now, we've looked at some of these things before, but just to highlight the parallel between Israel and the church and the way that God has dealt. Israel started with a 38-year period of espousal. They had 40 years in the wilderness, but two years were spent at Sinai. And then they set off on their journey, this period of time where they were learning to love and know God. 38 years. The church also started with a period of 38 years, up to AD 70, from the time of the resurrection. But then Israel goes through this time of victory, through war as they go into the promised man land under the leadership of Joshua. The church, represented in the book of Revelation as the church of Smyrna, also, though suffering, had a time of victory. The church was growing and becoming strong. But then with Israel, a time of complacency brought defeat, the time of the judges. They started embracing the world. Well, exactly the same thing happened with the church. The church started getting complacent. And the letter in Revelation to Pergamos really just speaks of this mixed marriage This period of time when Constantine allowed the church and the world to be fused together, the paganism and the the Christians started to meet, so the Christians were allowed to meet openly and freely rather than being persecuted. And they started being allowed to meet in the pagan temples and so on. I ever wonder why we have such ornate, lavish buildings that people call churches. 
Well, that really all stems back to the time of Constantine. But then we get to, with Israel, the period of the kings, as it were. They rejected God's rule over them, and they said, we want a man to rule over us. And God said, well, okay, have it your way. And they had Saul. Turned out to be a very bad idea for them. But the church did the same thing. We rejected God's rule, and we ended up with a man ruling over the church in the form of the papacy. Depicted in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, it's the church of Thyatira. You then find with Israel that we get to the division of the kingdom. Solomon's apostasy leads to Israel in the north who end up in idolatry and yet are commended for their good works. And then in the south you have Judah. We're not perfect. In fact, we're told they're worse than Israel because they should have seen and learned from the things that Israel have done. Well, interestingly, the church then gets to this period of division. Very much highlighted in the letter to the church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. Because you have the Catholic apostasy and that leads then to the Catholic Church. And of course the Catholic Church, no secret, they've got into all sorts of idolatry. You can't go into a Catholic Church without being confronted with idols. And yet the Catholic Church commended for their good works. And they have done a lot of good works. No question about it. But then you've got the Protestant Church who should have learned but didn't. In fact, in many respects have been even worse. Of course, judgment was foretold upon both Israel and Judah, but the faithful were taken away to Babylon where they were protected and preserved while God brought his wrath upon Jerusalem. The same thing is prophesied for the church, that the faithful will be taken away from this world while God brings his judgment upon the world. Finally, the apostates and false prophets will be destroyed. That's what happened in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was burned with fire. And of course the same is prophesied to happen upon the false religious church, which will be a mix of all sorts of different denominations and religions. and They also will be judged by fire. But then after that, the faithful in Israel did return to inherit the land again, and they built a temple that the Messiah would teach from. And for the church, at the second coming, the bride of Christ will return with Jesus They will inherit the land. And again, another temple will be built that the Messiah will teach from. I mean, these things are just incredible. Another one, Joshua in the book of Revelation. Joshua, the name, his name means Jesus. Revelation is the revelation of Jesus. Even in titles there's a similarity. But the book of Joshua is all about Joshua dispossessing the usurpers from the land. What is Revelation about? It's about another Yeshua dispossessing the usurpers from the land. In the book of Joshua, we have ten nations. Three of them fall, leaving seven. In the book of Revelation, we're told that there will be a ten-nation confederacy. Three will fall, leaving seven. Joshua, we're told, sends in two spies. But they're not really spies. They don't bring back an intelligence report or anything of value. All they do is witness. Well, in the book of Revelation, Jesus will send in two witnesses. In the book of Joshua, we find it's the commander of the army of the Lord who fights the battle. In the book of Revelation, the same person is Jesus who fights the battle. In the book of Joshua, we find the seven trumpets blown. In the book of Revelation, as you're familiar already, the seven trumpets blown. In the book of Joshua, you have this character who sets himself up and gives him himself this title of Adonai Zedek. It means the king of Jerusalem. Well, how interesting. Because in the book of Revelation, we're going to have another imposter setting himself up as if he would be Christ, and he will set himself up as the king of Jerusalem. As a result of that, we find that the Beth Horon in the book of Joshua, there's a battle and we see signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. Well, we know from Revelation 6, that's exactly what is foretold to come. As a result of that, the people hide themselves in the caves to flee from God's wrath. And that's exactly what they do. We're told in Revelation chapter 6, people realize it's God's judgment and they will flee and try and hide in the caves. The book of Joshua ends though with a covenant with God, the God who delivered his people. Revelation, just the same. See the design. I said already this is an integrated message system. I hope this morning you're just getting the idea that this really is truly so integrated. And we just see God's fingerprints just interweaving, interweaving this incredibly. There's so much that no man could just engineer this. Just one other on this theme. The Feast of Passover, 
They were told that on the tenth day of the, the month, this is why they're in Egypt, they were to take a lamb. It was the first month of the year in their calendar. The lamb must be without blemish, they were told. But on the fourteenth day, they were to keep this lamb with them until the fourteenth day. And then the fourteenth day, between the evenings, they were to sacrifice, they were to kill this lamb. And its blood was to be spread on the lintels and the doorposts. And anybody then who entered into the dwellings and passed under the blood into the house would be safe from God's judgment on the firstborn of the land. That was this historical feast that the Jews celebrated. But jump forward 1,500 years. And on the tenth day of the month, we find the the orange one, second column in. The tenth day of the month, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and he is taken as their king. They worship him as their king. The only day Jesus allowed that to take place. That's on the tenth day. On the fourteenth day, this lamb without blemish, Jesus, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, celebrates first of all the Passover with his disciples in the upper room. Because bear in mind, in the Jewish calendar, the day begins in the evening. So it became the fourteenth in the evening. Jesus celebrates with his disciples the Passover, but the very next day in our mindset, but it's just still the same calendar day for the Jews, still the 14th, Jesus then goes out and is crucified. This lamb without blemish, taken on the 10th day, crucified on the 14th day. The 15th day was a, a special feast. It was another one of the feasts of Israel. The day that followed the feast of Passover was the feast of unleavened bread. That's when Jesus was placed into the ground in the evening. But then on the first day of the week, which happened to be another Jewish feast, it was the feast of first fruits. And Paul tells us that Jesus is our first fruits, being, being the first to rise from the dead. I mean, you see the, the design even in this. Paul gives us a summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. This is what he says it is, the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. According to what scriptures? All those who speak about the Passover, and many others, of course. And that he was buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that he rose again the third day, all according to the scriptures. You see, everything that took place in that week had been prophesied. The details, incredible. So what's the conclusion for this this morning? Well, it's quite simply this, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's what 2 Timothy tells us, all scripture. This isn't man's attempt to write something that might have some sort of religious or philosophical value. This is God's word to mankind. Every number, every place name, every detail as Jesus himself said, every yod, every tittle, all there by deliberate, supernatural design. And if I can take you back to those words in Revelation, chapter 22, verse 18. For I testify unto every man that hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add, add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy... You see, some would argue that this is speaking just of Revelation. Well, if the first reference, the book of the prophecy of this book, well then, the book of this prophecy has to be a larger view, meaning all of Scripture. It says God shall take away from him his share. And then it concludes in verse 11 and 12, it says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. What books were opened? Well, I would, I would just challenge you to consider that it might be the 66 books that we call the Bible. Because you've already seen how God can include under the surface of the text all sorts of information and details. And we're only looking at it on one level. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And we're told, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You know, there are many people today, sadly, who decide that they're going to dismiss certain parts of scripture. Because they don't feel it's culturally relevant anymore, or it doesn't kind of fit for their particular lifestyle. Well, just be careful, because if you were to take something out of that text, how do you know, if God hasn't concealed in this book your name, that you're taking out the very part which contains the code where your name is written? 
I just want to finish by reading to you just a, uh, just a few things from Chuck Nisler. He says this, The most important code in the scriptures may be you. Are you written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Is the Bible a code book that also anticipates your decision regarding his offer of redemption? The most exciting code to discover is your own. We have learned that even randomness doesn't exist in the universe. He says you're reading this book right now is not a coincidence, but may be an event of cosmic significance. I'd say that you're being here or you're listening to this recording. would be just the same. As we study the Bible, treat it with utmost respect. Don't let anyone con you into allegorizing or treating it as a collection of cultural legends. These things have to be discerned by the Spirit of God. As you study your Bible, as you do it diligently, you will make the dramatic discovery that it is supernatural in its origin. It is supernatural in its design. It is supernatural in its effect on you and your life. But that comes about if you realize that God means what he says and says what he means. Allegorize it, spiritualize it, as some people suggest, and it will quickly unravel into meaninglessness. It is the integrity of the whole that provides its own defense. As you study, recognize that every piece impacts every other piece. And the real question, of course, is what does the Bible portray? What is the image it gets across? Jesus Christ, and on every page. The great discovery you will make, the more you know about Jesus, the more you know about your Bible, the more you will find an aspect, an insight, a portrayal of Jesus Christ on every page, all the way from Genesis, all through the Torah, all through the entire scriptures. As you do, you will begin to understand the definition of truth. Truth is when the word and the deed become one. As Adam and Eve were dismissed from the Garden of Eden, God prophesied that he would provide a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, a kinsman of Adam. He gave a promise in Genesis 3.15, and that promise is amplified and extended page by page, generation by generation, century after century, and of course was fulfilled in Judea 2,000 years ago. And he's not through. The ultimate drama is about to come to its climax. He's promised to return to take possession of that which he purchased so long ago. He described the circumstances that would prevail upon planet Earth when he was to return. He indicated that Israel would have been restored in the land, that they would have regained biblical Jerusalem, that they would have rebuilt their temple, and that that temple would have been desecrated by a world leader at a time when Europe would re-emerge as a major power centre again. A major peace plan would be established, probably on the heels of a nuclear event or triggered by a Muslim invasion of Israel. Detail by detail by detail, we are being plunged right now into a period of time about which the Bible says more than any other period of time in human history. And the question before us all individually and collectively is, what are you going to do about it? Is Jesus Christ the primary dynamic in your personal life? It doesn't matter which church you go to, it doesn't matter what background you come from, it doesn't matter if your personal relationship with the King of... Sorry, what does matter is your personal relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Is he the primary element in your life? Jesus Christ does not want to be number one on a list of ten, he wants to be number one on a list of one. You were on his mind before the foundation of the world. Is your name personally written in his book of life? He has a destiny for you that is so fantastic that there is no way you can earn it. It's there for the asking. Talk to him about it. He's anxious to hear from you. The creator is indeed in love with his creation, but he's given you the terrifying capacity of refusing. He concludes, as we've been exploring hidden codes in the Bible, I can't help but wonder, is it possible that some... Cosmic equation, not just the linear equations of the equal distant letter sequences, but some nth order equation has your name hidden in it for an eternal inheritance beyond time and space. An inheritance destined in that reality which transcends this temporary one. You can tell if you're written there by your response to him. And he just quotes a verse from John's Gospel. You see, you may not, be, even without the computers, be able to find at the moment your own name in this book. But I can tell you for a fact, you can know that it is there. Because John tells us, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things are written that you might believe that Jesus 
is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Let's bow our hearts. Father God, as we just ponder these things this morning, as we consider the incredible lengths you have gone to to communicate with us, the design that you have interwoven into scripture, Lord, it still comes down to that most important individual question of whether we have accepted you as our Lord and Saviour. We can't come to you, Lord, because we have something we can bring or something you need or want. We can't plead with you, Lord, because we think we've been unfairly treated. Because, Lord, we recognize that we were sinners. We are sinners. But what you have offered, Lord, is a pardon for our sins. Because somebody else has taken the price and paid for them. So, Lord, we pray, stir us. Help us to appreciate your word like we've never done before, to love it, to read it daily, to allow it to permeate our thinking and our lives. Let it truly be a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Because, Lord, we're living in days where we truly need that illumination. And, Lord, I pray you stir every heart here and everyone that would listen to this message. And, Lord, for any that do not know you yet as their own Lord and Savior, that have not yet asked you to be Lord of their life, the issue is not evidence. There's overwhelming evidence that you are God and your word is true. The one issue, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. So Lord, soften those hearts, we pray. And bring a multitude of people into the kingdom before you return. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.